0: Welcome everyone. You are listening to A Brief History of Power. I'm Willie Grills here with Dr. Adam Kuntz, continuing our our series, our saga if you will, on the American underground. Adam, how are you? I am doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. We've had two days of fall weather. And wow. so
1: Congratulations.
0: Yeah, I mean it's going to go away. It's okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> does it does it just go straight into misery or does it go back to summer like which is a different it goes, it goes
0: back to summer okay two days of ice somewhere in december and january right now everybody's just an astrologist talking about these solar eclipse so that's what has gripped central arkansas right now
1: yeah i mean i guess everyone is is converging on being a 19 year old girl so right know, they're, they're all going to stare at, at, at the times. sun
0: for 10 minutes
1: <laughs> but anyway, soul bra is not coming on this podcast. So we can't afford him. We, find no, out. we try. No, we, we, I can't, I can't afford all the advertising that he would do as soon as he would open his mouth. So <laughs> right, fun. yeah.
0: So how about that? How about out
1: in Denver? This would be a place that if you were soul bra and you wanted to leave Australia, you would come plenty of sun, 72 degrees. I know people get bored with this, but this is why people move here for the weather. So,
0: right. And yeah. um, I mean, and and right now I am crowdfunding a project to destroy Blucifer, and so once <laughs> well, that's that, done, the w- the weather will
1: improve. That would be a work of God, for you to destroy Blucifer, and then and then you can go after the murals and the the gargoyle statues in baggage claim. So, right. And who knows what's in the tunnels? Nobody does, but everything relies on tunnels kind of strangely. So there's plenty of space, but you have to go into a tunnel to get between the terminals and right. uh where you arrive. So it's I it's mean, all pretty weird.
0: I've spent way too much time in that airport, which makes me wonder am I a fed? <laughs> uh no, I no. I mean you you might not be, but I definitely am based <laughs> on how much
1: time I spend in that airport. Yes. Yeah. But, on, but, well, I mean, but I mean based on that.
0: my obviously fake name. <laughs> At least I didn't pick an Irish one. Right. Right. So yeah, that's a nice segue into american shadiness <laughs> so today is going to be a, a fun topic i'm going to talk about something that doesn't get talked about a lot we're going to continue talking about teenage rebellion but we're going to get into the beatniks of the 60s everybody wants to talk about the hippies which is we'll see um we'll just get up. we won't quite get to the hippies today no and then the hippies you know were never as big of a force as, as people would like you to believe they all became straight-laced boomers and senators in the 80s, but in the 70s. So they are influential in that way, but they had morphed into yuppies by then. But we'll get there. I, yeah,
1: and and the reason we're not going to get there is because, honestly, the early 60s are more important for, quote, the 60s, the way that people think about them, mm-hmm. than the late 60s are. And I'm not I'm not saying that to be edgy. I'm saying all the elements of the 60s that people now regret being downstream from are present particularly in northern california but in lots of places yeah in the early 60s you you don't need to wait until 1967 or 1968 to see this mm-hmm. stuff and the reason that people can turn easily into what's what's going to be called a yuppie in the 80s is because their commitment to these things recreational drug use certain musical styles lots of other things well yeah is is pretty shallow
0: yeah absolutely and it's the pop culturization of the nation that happens I mean in large part that's the big that's the big op that really wins people over and you know if you remember from the last episode we talked a lot about what pop, pop, pop popular culture was doing in the 40s and 50s we talked about Cowboys and now all that's going to get turned on its head yeah and people are going to romanticize it a bit and be like well when Kennedy was shot then that killed the soul of America well it works well as a symbol in a way, but it's not really the cause of anything, M- maybe more of a symptom of its time than the cause of its times. Yeah, I I don't know if we'll get there this week or if
1: we'll have to take more time to tease it out, but there's a complex relationship in it between the pop culture changes and the public events and public affairs. And how those two things are related are going to become increasingly important because the nation is being bombarded with mass produced pop culture by this time. That's why we talked about the radio. That's why we talked about the TV. Because if you don't have those things, then you can't really have an intimate relationship between what's happening publicly, voting presidents, military interventions, the growth of three letter agencies. And what's happening inside people's heads, especially 19 year olds heads. Yeah, because they're not necessarily connected and people aren't aware of those things.
0: Yeah. And and teenagers are going to have probably a voice and a place in culture like they didn't have beginning in the 60s. Of course, they don't get the vote until the 70s. But the stage is going to be set for that. And so, you know, picture a time where teenagers couldn't vote. Okay, still nobody cared what they thought and now you're going to find mass marketing appealing to them in a way that yeah it always had but in a way a much bigger way than it had before the youth voice is going to be magnified a bit not necessarily initially in politics but certainly in you know consumerism and in that part of the that part of our culture so right um so we went from the birth of rock and roll and now we're going to get on into Kind of the teenage rebellion and other spheres. And there's really no better poster boy for that than James Dean. James Dean is going to sum these kinds of
1: things up because he goes on a moving image. So there are other people like James Dean, both stylistically and whatever they're working in, also in how they appear. Jack Kerouac of the Beats is like that. But the reason James Dean matters is because his image, his moving image, this thing that seems to simulate reality so well, gets put in front of so many people's eyes in the late 50s. Yeah. And what what that's going to cause is that a group that obviously always existed on a chronological level, which are what we now call teenagers, a word that comes out of the 1930s, but isn't really a focus of attention and certainly not of marketing. Until those people have cars and spending money after the Second World War. Now, we're going to put an image in front of your eyes, if you are that age, about how to be. And people are deeply suggestible, which is one Mm. of the things that they learned in the psychological experiments that they were doing in the 40s and 50s. Especially on servicemen. Is how under the influence of many things, and in this way, it's a little hard to see the difference between the moving image and drug use how suggestible people are and how how much they can be changed.
0: Yeah, you know, James Dean, for those that don't know, is an actor, was an actor, career lasts five years, killed in a car wreck in 1955. Most notable films are going to be East of Eden, Giant, and most notably Rebel Without a Cause. And he becomes the poster boy, at least of his generation, of the rebellious, sexy teenager and for whatever reason he has stuck in the i'm going to use a stupid word but the zeitgeist uh, in a way that few other <laughs> surprised you didn't willfully mispronounce it right. um, yeah yeah well you know certain yeah. memes are just for the boys you know and um <laughs> and so you know he he his image to this day indoors in a way that maybe only elvis does as far as dead celebrities i mean for the sake of argument, we'll say Elvis has died. And so, um, <laughs> you know, what. Right. what is the rebellious teenager image? Why is it so attractive to the kiddos at this time? Or I'm not even going to say kiddos. Why is it so attractive to the young adults of the time?
1: Yeah, it's it's attractive, I think, partly because something you'll find in almost any country's history when it is largely or, or entirely at peace is that there's a there's a discontent that then gets manifested in the population that would otherwise be striving mm-hmm. right and that this is the first generation in a couple generations so these are not these are not technically baby boomers right mm-hmm. if you're a teenager in 1955 you you can't be a baby boomer mm-hmm. right so this is the generation before the boomers they are the first generation in about a generation and a half or more not to have gone to war in adolescence Mm -hmm. because they're just a little bit too young to have been in the second world war now many of them will be drafted for korea many of them will not even get there or they'll be sent to germany because we are trying to maintain a, a worldwide military presence at least in a nascent way by the early 1950s but not on not on nearly the same scale as the second world war or even the first. So plenty of people have plenty more money, plenty more income, plenty more free time in the 1950s. And certainly after the ceasefire in 1953, if you are drafted, which is going to disappear shortly thereafter, you're not going to go into combat. Because of that, all of those energies that are contained in anybody of that age. So there's a difference here. I'm not saying that I disbelieve in teenagers in the sense of you change biologically. You want to differentiate yourself from your parents. You want to go see things and do things and establish yourself in some way or, or get started on a life. It's fine. That that is actually perennial. It's not perennial to say that means now you hate your parents or now you're going to move thousands of miles away or lots of other things that are going to be essentially programmed into these kids by the media they're consuming, Mm -hmm. a part of which is James Dean. But again, when you think about, okay, what kind of a generational problem is this? Remember, the boomers are like nine years old at the time. The oldest ones are nine years old when James Dean dies. And, or I'm sorry, maybe nine or 10, right? Right. And and the people who are watching this are are a little older than that. The people who are making those films are quite a bit older than that. So this is all coming out of a, a deep change in us culturally that's now being expressed after the Second World War. But the seeds of which you could say are planted in the youth of people who were born in 1905 yeah who and, experienced the 1920s yeah
0: and i don't know if it's worth even mentioning you know james dean comes from a very different school of acting so what's called the method or method acting barring off of stanislavsky's system from the 1930s which sounds really silly when you try to explain like well it combines you know elements of dynamism and the subconscious conscious and Pushkin's aphorism and all other stupid buzzwords that, you know, but the but the, the general idea is it's this sort of psychological process one goes through for a more natural and grounded performance so that film is going to try to project a more real image, although ironically, it's more heightened emotionally, which I think is really going to play into what happens in the 60s. You know, you go back and you watch a silent movie. Um, the performances are very different. Or boy Lon Chaney, you know, is going to be very different from what's going to come about in the '60s. And if you never watched any Lon Chaney movies, you need to go do it like right now. Like you need to stop what you're doing and then come back to the podcast. Or you watch you watch a movie from the '30s and '40s. The performances are different, but beginning with you know in the '50s, you're going to start with guys like Brando and Dean, and then on up into the '70s with with Pacino and others, and on up to today, the so called method is really going to begin to take over. So performances are going to be different and they're going to captivate an audience in a different way. People are going to really identify whether right or wrong with characters through what I consider to be a form of psychological manipulation. And that sounds very sinister um, and maybe it is, but the idea is to, is to again, give a performance that is trying to appear more grounded, more realistic. And in doing so, be more powerful, be more emotionally persuasive to the audience, more convincing. Right. And and I think that that has a much bigger impact
1: on the audience than some of the things that we've talked before on the show about the history of Hollywood and where it came from and why it's there and stuff like that. That's all fine and interesting. But the immediate impact on the viewer is made by the actor. And if the actor is professionally engaged in trying to take on the spirit of a completely different human being, every time he performs that's going to deeply affect the person who's watching yeah. him to, to whom that's being communicated right. i mean i think i think one way to think about this is once you have moving images in front of you at all times or on the weekends at the drive-in or now in your living room with a tv or now on your smartphone what what what's really happening is that, that it's almost like you are being possessed by the people mm-hmm. you're always watching yes. in the same way that the Bible talks in a simple way about the company that you keep. Well, you're now keeping company with people who in their personal lives, which people are very interested in, you know, TMZ is probably one of, you know, it's probably a much bigger website than say, uh, you know, uh, the podcast website, you we'll know, still, well, uh, we're not as, yeah, maybe we're not, <laughs> we're not as we're not as big as TMZ. Why why are people so into it? They're we're into a, it. We're because... no world star.
0: No, uh, no, not yet. Right. Um, but yeah, and and so the method develops on stage. But we're a long way. You know, the stage has never really captivated your average American the way right. movies yeah. and TV will. Right. And it's ebbed and flowed. But if we were going to talk about theater and Americans, we'd have to pretty much stop in the. In the late 1800s, because it was kind of big in the cities. And then today, it's still only big in cities. Right. For, I mean, just for logistical reasons as much as anything. But now, now every, every small town has a cinema by the 50s. Every small town probably has a cinema and a drive-in, or a drive-in with reason, within within driving distance. We're coming into the 50s, where very quickly, nearly every household will have a television. And so they're they're going to be exposed to these people. They're going to feel an intimacy with celebrities in a yeah, way they never did right. before. Yeah, exactly. You know, okay, so a silent star of stage and screen, yeah, you might you might see them once in your life. You know, you think about all these great movies up until the video age, unless they got a theatrical re-release, you might see it once upon release or a couple years later, whenever it rolls into your town. Because nationwide releases were not a thing till relatively relatively recently in the 20th century. So so now you're getting an intimacy with actors and performance in a way you never did. And you're you're sort of mainlining drama in a way that you never did before. Right. And like like you're saying a very powerful impact on people. And to say nothing, you know, to go back to James Dean, to say nothing of teen magazines and things like that. And that that's all
1: pushed out through an infrastructure that you know, the groundwork for which is laid before the Second World War, but now is going to grow, especially with the growth of television after the Second World War. There are also cultural influences that will be pushed out through that infrastructure as we get going into the 60s that predate the 60s, or in some cases are the part of the 60s people still think of as the 50s, the first couple years of that decade. And that's where when you're tracking these influences, you want to watch simultaneously what's going on in a mass way, right? So what are the most visited websites on the internet or, you know, how many little towns have drive-in theaters or or cinemas so that, you know, Larry McMurtry, when he's mourning the death of the American small town can call it the last picture show, right? right? But at the same time, you want to track what is going on in the pe in in among the people, among the kinds of people who will be producing culture either right right then or later on. So when you're looking for the groundwork for what we think of as the 60s, which is really a post-1965 phenomenon for most yeah. Americans, that's already there.
0: Yeah. And it's going to lead to the rise in different genres. You're going to see science fiction really come into nor- mainstream at this time uh, in a way that it hadn't before. And I think that's related to things like the space race, but it's it's related to other things. Yeah. It's related to a kind of progressivism uh, that's so starting to come about at this time. We talked about dime novels. Can
1: you just right. draw what's the connection between the dime novels and the pulps? Yeah. And who's reading, who's reading these pulps by, let's say, 1958?
0: Yeah, so the pulps are... Are the the middle ground between the dime novel and the comic book. And the pulps are, it's not really fair to say they're all racy, but they can be racy. They can be Westerns. They can be a lot, there's a lot of detective novels, and there's a lot of kind of CD science fiction, but I mean that in the best way I can. And, you know, the pulps are, are read by actually quite a, a large audience, predominantly male. Yeah, right. But the pulps are going to capture a young audience in a, to a greater degree than even the dime novels probably did. But that might be related to literacy as much as anything. And they're going to grow directly into comic books, which are going to have fantastical themes, often the science fiction-related themes. And and that's going to grow into the rise of the, of the science fiction novel, which existed before. Apologies to H.G. Wells. But you're going to get this very different kind of... of uh, futuristic sort of speculative literature that's going to come out at this time too. The pulps, I'm a pulp respecter. There's a lot of good story there. It still has the elements of the older novels, black hat, white hat kind of stuff, but it's going to have much more adult themes than, than even they would there. It's going to reflect a culture that's kind of craving more explicit. Now in our, in our time, it's not, they would be seen as very quaint, but in their day, they're really rather explicit. And then the comic, the early comic book—well, I say early, but the comic books up until, um, up until the Comics Code. Depending on the genre, they're going to be really rather explicit. It's not all, yeah, Batman, right. Batman versus the Condiment King or something like that, or the villain with the, who's a giant pencil who will erase you or whatever. You know, you're going to have EC Comics, very grisly horror stuff. You're going to have the science fiction pulps and comics that are going to have. If they don't have sexual themes in the text, the covers are going to be very lurid. Yeah. In order right. to get you to buy them.
1: Right. Yeah. And and a lot of that, and you know, the reference to the comics code, I mean, a lot of this is there before World War II. So when we're talking about yes, your public events, right? Your your Great Depression, your attempt to recover from that, your Second World War, Korean War, lots of this. You have to realize all of this is already ongoing and that when a nation that is like this already, that is so obviously keyed to adolescence, as well as expressive of very adolescent urges almost. I mean, the fact that the pulps are marketed, even when it's something that now is seen as most high literature. I mean, that's certainly yeah. the case with Lovecraft and some of the Arkham House right. Or Robert E. Howard or something like that. Robert E. Howard, right? Exactly. E- when even when it what's inside is is worth retaining and worth rereading, it's still marketed to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. So that our, and, and it's our culture is in, defined by that. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, they're I mean they're printed on the cheapest paper possible. It's a volume. That's what Paul prefers to. Yeah. yeah the paper use. Yep. And the big pulps are very quickly translated into other media. I mean, the shadow is for a long, long time, the most popular radio program. Yep. But it comes directly from the pulps. And and he's just Batman. Sorry to burst any bubbles there, but Batman totally rips the shadow off. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, you know, what can you do? <laughs> but that's, you know, all going to, you know, translate and the themes there are going to be kind of processed and distilled down into stuff that you're going to see in early television and in, and in movies. Right. And It's in, in, film noir is, or should I say, you know, film noir, if I want to be haughty, you know, it's those themes are going to translate and they're going to come directly from the pulps. Some of the superhero stuff, you know, all of the, and the sci-fi stuff really going to be coming out of that. Some of it borrowed from from novels, but again, you know, remember, a lot of your early science fiction is not novels per se; it's short stories and pulp magazines. Right. Yeah, and it's where we—it's where I learned everything I needed to, to know about the Hollow Earth and the Deros and who really yeah. pulls the
1: strings. Right. Very simple, and such that when it is something of relatively greater length, probably would be called a novella in Europe. Correct it's going to be called a fix up in America because you stitch together things that you wrote hastily yeah. into something with a longer story, yeah. but it's unusual.
0: Yeah. And you know, we, we forget, you know, you think about Lovecraft or, or Howard. I want to keep like using those two guys because, and I actually much prefer Howard to Lovecraft and um, okay. Hot take. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I'm a Conan apologist <laughs> and a Puritan at heart. So of course I love Solomon <laughs> Kane, but these guys are, you know they're they're just churning stuff out because that's how they make a living even if they come yeah, from money right. you know this is exactly. not a glamorous profession at this time no and yet they you know and and really they're guys who don't get respect until especially in the case of lovecraft because i uh, howard probably outsold him a lot or was probably more popular in his day yes lovecraft gets rediscovered actually in the 60s yes by some of the people we're going to talk about and that's kind of an interesting thing for me why are all these you know, uh, hallucinogenic users, um, enamored with the Cthulhu mythos all of a sudden.
1: I mean, I mean, do you want to answer that question? Right. (laughs) Right. Because I mean, yeah, because, uh, okay. Part of the issue there is that, and for the listeners, what you want to look into is the poll called weird tales. Yeah. That's really, that's really going to be your gold standard. And what you're looking at is an America that still in its, in the framework of its thinking, is very Christian in the content of its thinking is not.
0: Oh yeah, yeah yeah
1: and so so in Lovecraft you still have you still have demons, you still have great evil. you still have a very recognizably old New England view of the world and just out of sheer ethnic pride I, I will respect Lovecraft more than Howard, <laughs> although although I respect Howard, but what you're what's happening is that you are secularizing, America, by and by, beginning with cultural producers like Lovecraft, who is who is very anti-Christian, right, but cannot shake the framework of seeing the world as deeply permeated by sin, full of darkness, full of things that may come upon you unawares, all of that without a concept of redemption, but but therefore highly recognizable and very clear it's 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 one reason that you even if you don't like the genre and certainly if you don't like horror films which which i personally generally don't but if we're talking about horror literature it's the same the point stands is that the reason that is such a deeply american genre is because we are still puritans even after we lose our religion
0: right and so and, the yeah. yeah and i mean that persists in new england culture to this day in yep. my in my opinion, oh yeah, um, yep. So, so to kind of reel it back in, c- coming into the fifties, mid fifties, America is still uh, on the ascent. We are the superpower. Our our star is only rising,
1: very much so. Yeah.
0: And so all of the stuff that that we are imbibing in American culture is going to be exported, and
1: because yeah both because of our prosperity, because of basically because of our isolation. so we we did not make the isolationist choice about the second World War, but we did benefit from our natural isolation in that we emerge both as non-communist officially and as very obviously undevastated by yeah, war exactly where Europe our, had been
0: our infrastructure is still standing yep. And uh, so, v- very yeah. important I mean why do we become a manufacturing powerhouse because we had the only factories left and the only roads <laughs> still intact I mean it's you know not really that hard <laughs> and
1: the the other thing just to keep track of and this will be a separate series because it deserves its own time so I don't want to just treat Rhodesia or the Portuguese Wars in Africa as you know just sideshows too. <laughs> James Dean and drive in movie theaters, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So that'll that'll get us on time. But the reason that we have this rising profile is is also because we win the war and we retain a will to to be what we are, which European nations do not. They have just fought through two devastating wars. So even if you come out on the other side with an empire, for example, as do the French and the British, their ruling classes certainly not to speak of. You know the the Blackfeet in in North Africa or French officers in Indochina or others, but they are going to lose their will to retain their profile. So as they recede from the scene throughout the world, America, which won a war in the Pacific and in Europe, is now going to have a profile military, political, and in terms of James Dean and drive-in movies and all of that a cultural profile worldwide it, that's not possible if decolonization doesn't happen right because we fill the vacuum formerly occupied by other powers both political and military but also cultural right american accents are going to become standard for english language learners in lots of places after the second world war mm-hmm. And that's because we're we step into the gap or the the vacuum left by the retreat of others who generally themselves disengage willingly from the position they had occupied before the Second World War,
0: right. It's going to lead to an American confidence and probably leads to our stereotype as being very boisterous and cocky, which is well earned, and I'm proud of it as an American. But we feel that the march will forever go on. And as we, as we are sort of living in the dying embers of the empire now, that might be hard for some of our listeners to believe. You know, American optimism begins at this time. I mean, yeah, okay, it's there even during Thomas Jefferson's day, but now we're not going from coast to coast in the Americas. We're going across the world. Yeah, and and I think you see this in the way that
1: Trump both talks and and how he appeals to people of his own age,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right? Trump is one of our three presidents born in 1946. Just strange little factoid (laughs) is that that it's not just boomers generally, but a very specific set of boomers who have been in control for a long time in America. Obama being our our recent exception to the 1946 rule. Is that he can appeal to and he can talk as if, this is a incessant talking point, is that we are the greatest nation on the earth. Right. Now that and Colonel Girls and I have cultural differences on Braggadocio for sure that are that are revealed at various times. So some some are more American than others. He's he's more American than I am in this regard. More more Davy Crockett than I don't know, <laughs> John D. Rockefeller, <laughs> who was had no braggadocio whatsoever. But what you're dealing with is a, a group of people who grew up in and remember a completely different ethos about our country, that it's not enough to say it's our country or it's it's my country or, you know, the, the lyrics of America, the beautiful or something, but that it can be compared to every other country. And, and when you do that somehow, it's the best. Yeah. Whatever, whatever that means, right? But that that really can't come out of anything other than the way that we felt about ourselves in the 50s and early 60s. Yeah. If that hadn't existed, nobody would run around saying that. And that's why people younger than that generation don't run around saying that. Even if they don't have some sort of, you know, America's original sin is like this, and America's always been horrible. Even if you don't think that, it's kind of hard to just come out and say, it's the greatest nation in the world. Yeah. What does that mean? Like, is that true? If you're Belgian, do you have to think that? Like, well, nobody's ever kind of thought that about Belgium, that? you
0: know. Um
1: <laughs> although I mean just be, picking a younger country
0: I than mean, we are. To be fair, all. have you ever met an Italian, you know? <laughs> or even the Irish? And I mean, look, you know, we we're, and we're still a dominant force. I mean, you can find a cheeseburger anywhere. You're welcome, American. <laughs> And, and we do have this kind of incessant thing in the modern age where you know you you stay at some sandals resort in Jamaica and all of a sudden oh America kind of sucks compared to this you know you get this very uh, engineered uh, view as a tourist in a in another country yeah right but there are there are objectively better things about living here I suppose you could argue objectively worse things about living here depending upon your level of medical debt or something like that but. There are some definite positives that come out of this. You know, we could say the interstate highway system, but we have Germany to credit for that. And it killed off all the cool roadside attractions. So maybe that's not one, but we're still a relatively safe country. We're still a relatively friendly country. And uh, there and and some of those things are uniquely American. I know there are friendly people everywhere, but, you know, you still run the risk of getting shivved somewhere. It's interesting to me, you know, and I've lived in foreign countries for extended periods of time doing this, that, and the other. And, uh, you know, it's just such a cope. Oh, this is the greatest food in the world. I I, I promise you, it's not. Unless unless you're in like one of three countries, it's just really not. You know, oh, it's great. Don't you love being on this crowded bus, you know, with the witch doctor over here? And and I know I sound like John Rocker, but still. You know, it's just, guys. I mean, is he wrong? You know, <laughs> right, <exactly. laughs> right?
1: Ask yourself in your heart, I mean, was there, John Rocker wrong? There are yeah. just some
0: things that you would hope Americans with enough time spent outside of America would say, you know, actually, we're not, we're not pretty bad. Anybody yeah. not living in Detroit should be able to say that. And, and so, you know, it is what it is, but you're going to come from this. So the big, the big teenage, you know, marketing boom. Eisenhower is going to be the, the most remembered leader through the 50s. But really, the one American figurehead who is going to become emblematic of all of this optimism and everything is going to be John F. Kennedy.
1: Yeah, and the reason that we want to use him as an archetype is is not because he's actually terribly representative of the actual achievements right. of Americans or of America at this time, a a much more representative figure in that way, honestly, is Richard Nixon, Mm -hmm. about whom we'll talk later in the series. Nixon overcomes horrible setbacks in his own family, works his way through everything that he does, and comes out the other side, having done really great things and having come back from Severe setbacks also professionally,
0: and then your high school she, history books just leave it as, well, Nixon wasn't pretty, and John F. Kennedy was, and that's yeah, well, that's the '60s. Yeah,
1: yes, and that's exactly right. Is that 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 is what matters in the last presidential election of the '1960s, which of the '1950s, which is which is really the '1960 presidential election?
0: Yeah, well, that's what, the, yeah, yeah.
1: Go ahead. Because what what you're dealing with is the reality of TV. Right, and t- TV is going to show you certain things that are very convincing. It just probably isn't showing you the truth.
0: Yeah, and the, you know we have studies from those time. I mean, actual, you know, you know, anecdotal interviews and stuff with people. You know, the ones by and large, the ones who watch the televised debate between Nixon and Kennedy. Oh, Kennedy won. Yeah, but the radio listeners, it's completely the opposite. Right, and so you just you end up with that. And, and you see it today, you know, when they bring Uncle Joe out and put him in his aviators and try to, you know, make memes and it just doesn't work. You know, I mean, but you but you've seen it in every every presidential election since then. Yeah, right.
1: Yeah. I mean, concern about foreign influence on elections is is hilarious for people who have been manipulating images and moving images yeah. <laughs> forever and ever and ever. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, go ahead and complain about the Russians. That's fine. But the fact that JFK, after all of that intervention and with incredible good looks and a very checkered personal past, was able to win an election basically by some phone calls placed to the dailies uh, on election night, so that Illinois came out in a certain way.
0: Yeah, the closest all- thing—the closest thing you have to this is Obama's election.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is very much. I mean, we would now call it we would now call it memes yeah. you know because that's what that that's the amount of information people can hold in their heads certain images things that they can remember from what they watched on tv certain static appearances well and, and reagan and, reagan yeah. falls
0: into this too you know him right. cutting, oh, yeah. you know his totally. face cutting a good silhouette his his ability to communicate and to present himself in such a way are in large part you know a credit to his success I mean, he's a he's a very charismatic person.
1: Yeah, yeah, and he is he is a product of the industry that that gave you James Dean.
0: Right, right, and and, and most impressively by being just a B level actor his whole career. Right. Yeah. If you you
1: can be you can be very much second or third rate, but as long as you are connected, you can still get very high in our society because we're not relying on ability here, right?
0: Right. And it's kind of like it's kind of like the media and our and our younger viewers seem to try to they seem to only believe that Trump was a reality show host who became president, which is very far (laughs) from the truth. And so But let's get back to JFK. We're yeah because we're we're gonna run out of time and want to know where these Kennedys came from. But a <laughs> b- bunch of rum runners. They, yeah, they are. Their their
1: connections politically of course in Massachusetts are are fairly limited. Massachusetts, whether you're talking about democratic politics or the mob or you know, but I repeat myself, <laughs> are are always gonna be limited. It's uh it's it's a it's a whole region with an outsized sense of its own importance. But the thing that is distinctive about the Kennedys is that they have connections to New York banking, of course, through the father. That's how he gets appointed as an ambassador is through the favors that he has done, particularly the New York Democratic Party and FDR through through Wall Street, as well as through a connection that people sort of forget about, but New York and Montreal is going to be mm-hmm. really important during prohibition because the kennedy family will come out the other side of the great depression which coincides with the end of national prohibition quite a bit wealthier because of their connections particularly with the bronf and bronfman family mm-hmm. who own seagram's gin among many other things and recently surfaced in the nexium cult
0: yeah, it's you know, very interesting folks at home. How it's always the same groups of people that keep popping back up.
1: Yeah, and and family matters, right? So as as Americans are going to be encouraged through TV and movies to care less about their family, to do things that their family would be ashamed of if they found out about it, <laughs> and then to despise their family for being ashamed of them. That doesn't actually apply to our our power groups our power groups operate very much in terms of family. Yeah. And so, and and that's, that's very true for the Kennedy family because JFK isn't even his own dad's first pick for most important. He's just the one who gets there fastest, partly through his success at Harvard and then also through yeah. PT-109, which then, if you've never heard of it, you should go look yeah. that up. That's about his war service.
0: And then J, JFK's... Own family, his immediate, you know, his wife and children, are going to be now this very public image of of the American family. Uh, it's going to be given a, a regal kind of character. It's going to be referred to as Camelot. Yeah, and 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 then the the mythos just sort of springs springs from that, and it still persists. And it's a it's a
1: Camelot represents a generational shift too, because Ike is obviously of a different generation you know he's in the military before the first world war and is fair at that time fairly old this is a really big change in american politics from that time to our time yeah little kids running around the white house yeah little kids running around the white house ike is seen as old he's he's younger than than your two front runners for next
0: year right how far um,
1: yeah, when you know, you know, when he leaves office. So, but he's seen as old. So, what happens is that a very, a very good, a guy whose image matches the time, is elected and brings in with him a beautiful wife who is a fashionista. the The White House is redecorated. It had been renovated under Truman, but Mamie Eisenhower was not a fashionista or terribly good looking. <laughs> And so, you know, so the confidence and and the joy, you know, even the, the joie de vivre of 1950s America gets established in the White House with the coming of Kennedy. So the place is going to begin to be called Camelot because it is as if Arthur has returned from the dead and, and everything is renovated. He also brings in with him men of a similar generation to advise him including his brother who's actually younger RFK so all of that is going to create great optimism about america and that's why when you look at you can even you can look at the pulps it's going to be hard unless you are an you know an obsessive fan to tell the difference in almost any medium between something produced in 1962 and something produced in 1952
0: yeah absolutely
1: stylistically people can't tell the difference and that that's where you know the reason we're calling this underground is that these cultural influences and we understand them as spiritual influences on human beings get expressed in art in pop culture in lots of things and so if i if i look at something and i say oh wow i guess that was actually you know 5 months before he was assassinated not sometime in 1954 that that song came out right well that that tells you a lot about what life is like
0: yeah. And now it'll be portrayed as if everybody in America is enamored with the Kennedys. And obviously, that's not true. But what does matter is, you know, the fact that that image is there and it is very persuasive. Right. You know, I wish we could just do a whole hour on the Kennedys versus Jimmy Hoffa with me taking the side <laughs> of Jimmy Hoffa. I will I'll be an <laughs> apologist for the Teamsters.
1: So when it's Irish versus later Ellis Islanders, you're a you're a later Ellis Island coalition. Well, in this guy. One, in
0: this one case, yeah, you know, okay. I got to go with that. Yeah. Okay, uh, but you know, you, you can you can rightly read history where Kennedys come across as good guys. You can also rightly read history where they come across as complete criminals and corrupt and degenerate, which is also true. I think both of those things can actually yeah. be true. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And, and, and he's a, and he's a young guy
1: too. I mean, so in yeah. his first term, you know, people will say, oh, he was doing this, he was doing that, or he would have done this in Vietnam. And we'll talk more about that probably next time. But yeah, I
0: mean, we'll get to, we'll get to talk about McNamara when we get to that and the different, the um, you know, sort of the budget minded approach to war and what that yep. does in the early oh. years of Vietnam. Yeah. Um, You know, I forgot where I was going to uh, go with this, but Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, uh, well, Like, for example, I would have liked to have seen JFK's approach to American poverty instead of LBJ's approach, which has led to the destruction of Appalachia and the inner city. Yeah, this is a this is a
1: non as any decent human being should be this is an LBJ hate
0: podcast. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's really the, <laughs> the golden thread that runs through every episode with either me or fist. So go, go read the Robert Carroll books and tell me this is not
1: one of the worst human beings <laughs> ever to have lived. I mean, just um, an
0: absolute garbage yeah. person. Yeah. Right. Yep. But of course we'll never know what JFK and RFK's poverty programs would look like because assassination.
1: Yeah. And, uh, this this is probably the the place maybe to start at a very high level and then we can we can pick it up again because it's going to be decisive for something we'll talk about next time which is sort of how we how we become involved in vietnam years and years before the public is aware years and years before the tv is covering vietnam every night when your dad sits down in his easy chair and That has to do with something that at a high level you have to remember, which is at the time of the Kennedy assassination, you are dealing with an American public, which generally has not only great confidence in its nation, but also confidence in its leaders. Mm -hmm. So that once something is broadcast on TV, it's not just that it's a relatively much higher trust society that's watching those things it's also that the people watching those things cannot now imagine what is supposed to happen there had been assassinations previously in american history in fact there's almost no time if you know you want to do this proportionally before the late 60s and the 1970s as violent as we talked about with some of the wild west stuff as the time between say 1865 yeah. and and the and the McKinley assassination. So you're dealing with the destruction of many things, among which is trust. The immediate explanation of the events televised in the Kennedy assassination, including the death of the president, as well as the death of others purportedly or seemingly involved, who Jack Ruby is, what he's doing, his connections to Las Vegas... None of that is really all that clear. So the I think the place to start is to say that what this is experienced as by the American population is something somewhat like the drug trips that many people are going on before 1963, but a vastly larger amount of people yeah. are going to go on after 1963, which is, I don't know what's happening it's kind of too real. It's kind of too intense. I don't know what anything means. And I'm severely confused by everything in front of my eyes.
0: Yeah. You know, the history of presidential assassination, you know, or assassination attempts rather kind of early. Um, Is Jackson the yeah. first assassination attempt that we have on a president? Yes. And and that's kind of a funny one because they have to actually pull Jackson away from the guy who tried to. <laughs> Absolute. Just Total, incredible. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. you got to yeah. love it. uh guy's pistol misfires and Jackson is on the guy. You know, McKinley, you know, of course, you know, Garfield, who has the misfortune of dying in New Jersey. You know, of course, McKinley's 1901, so that, you know, that's later. Uh, But, but yeah, this is, this is a very different one. This is, if you can believe it, more high profile. Right. And, and it's not live broadcast but it's the next thing you can get to the live broadcast of an assassination correct yeah if it, if it happened today there would be a million cameras you would have it on live leaks you know successor within the hour
1: and it's it's the first time that something to which we're now accustomed happens in american schools which is one thing that you may or may not know is about you know a ton nuclear weapons drills in schools that's one thing. That's a that's a byproduct of civil defense preparedness that we had already done to everybody on a sort of mass exercise scale at least in the Second World War and in many cases in the First. The thing that's different about the Kennedy assassination is it's the first time that news coverage can be watched in in school.
0: Yeah, and it's it's the first big major conspiracy theory as well. Now, there are um I mean demonstrable conspiracies that happen in American politics. I mean, the Lincoln assassination is kind of a broad-reaching conspiracy. Everybody remembers John Wilkes Booth; they forget all the other people who are hanged. Yeah, yeah, they forget all the others, and there. I mean, and
1: there's there's a very interesting book published in the 1930s asserting that this was the doing of Edwin Stanton, out of dissatisfaction with Lincoln and distaste yep. for the direction he was going to take Reconstruction.
0: Yeah, but now you have JFK, and very quickly. I mean, probably the day of people start formulating theories on that. And since we're coming up in our last ten minutes or so of this particular episode, apologies, we will not get. I don't think we're going to get to the beat generation because, well, we have to talk about uh, the conspiracies and what that says about what's beginning to happen in America. So Kennedy is assassinated, but one of the things you see now are while there might there may be a high trust in what the media is showing us. You're also seeing the rise of people beginning to question the narrative in a way. Now, they're questioning the narrative of all things in certain subcultures. But now here, even regular Americans are going, could one guy have made that shot? Were there two shooters? Right. Yeah. And and there are several things that you're going to see
1: in high profile shootings from Dallas to in much closer to our time, Las Vegas, that are going to be there present at the Kennedy assassination. One thing, just to bracket off, is that the official theory of what happened, it including <laughs> it, you know, just physically impossible ballistics. That's from the seventies, okay? Because the official this doesn't get put to bed with the leadership of Arlen Specter until the nineteen seventies, in the eyes of the federal government, and that comes out of lots of other suspicion and revelations about government agencies and what in 1963 the CIA is doing or the FBI is doing or whatever, that all comes later. Yeah. So what what you have at the time is simply confusion in the public presentation, obviously mourning the famous image of JFK Jr. saluting his father's casket. But in addition to all of that, you also have mass confusion about what even happened, right? So how can how is it possible for the president to be to be shot from that angle by that man is that man who is somehow readily traveling as a private citizen between and i'm speaking of oswald of course how is it possible for that man to travel readily between the united states and the soviet union i mean right.
0: like he met with the right. kgb but totally nothing nothing to see there <laughs>
1: right. all of that is is not not terribly clear at the time and the the way that this is covered does not involve some things that have now become familiar to us so the the notion of okay here's a mass shooting let's talk about gun violence is not the immediate move that is made in the media the immediate media move is toward finding a communist who is responsible for these things
0: yeah. although LGB- LBJ will move toward gun control very, very quickly within a couple it is, years. Do after you, that. Do you right. And
1: right. Do you know if that was that explained in terms of the Kennedy assassination? Not, not or as much it, because
0: okay. I mean, I so, it, yeah. it's, it's more rising violence in the country because what, um, the gun control act seeks to regulate are for the most part small concealable firearms. Yeah. Okay. Now other things are, don't get me wrong, but that's what it really carves into the most. I mean, Right. Oswald, let's just take the standard narrative. I mean, uses a uh, Italian war surplus Carcano, and and those things are still going to be relatively available and accessible to this day. For legal reasons, I won't get into, uh, you know, because they don't get dinged on import the way LBJ's uh, Gun Control Act will do. Um, so it's mostly going to be as a result of the general civil unrest that we have going on at that time. But the image of a slain president is going to be part of it. Yeah, it's not going to be like Brady pushing him around or something like that in the right in the eighties. Yep. But it definitely plays into it. But not in a, it, that that body doesn't really wouldn't have stopped any of this. But I mean, hey, that's the history of any of our gun control laws. So you know, it, it, it's it's interesting. A lot of the theories that come out of it relate directly to the rifle used by Oswald. Could he have made the shot that fast? Is the gun that accurate? Uh, those are the ones for me that don't hold that much water. Yeah, I could have made that shot. It been a hard shot, but everybody gets lucky sometimes. And, and maybe part of the theorizing about this is because people don't want to believe it could have been just that simple. It could have just been a lone man who managed to take down the most powerful man in the world.
1: Yeah, right. Uh, uh, which ties into know, our honest- American optimism thing. Right. Yeah, and and honestly, I, I don't I don't personally believe that explanation. Right. Um. Due to my distrust in Arlen Specter's grasp of of ballistics, but but the the issue that people have is they they don't. I think partly because of the power of moving images, they do not actually have a capacity to put it in any other kind of context. Right. Like if you're shot by a single man, by a single assailant as an American president, that that would be historically normal. Yeah, That's actually,
0: that's what happened that, that's to everybody else. Every, everyone, yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, that's what they tried to do to Jackson, that's what they tried to do to Roosevelt, to, to TR, not FDR. I mean, they did try to shoot FDR, instead they shot the mayor of Chicago. So that in and of itself is not the strange part right? Mm-hmm. The, the, stra- the, the strange parts here are, for example, who is Jack Ruby, Yeah. are for example, who are all the various parties that would have had it out for JFK such that they would have done something so yeah. politically risky. And they're finding, again, finding a single assailant or a single interested party, it's kind of hard to do. Because by this time, not only does the American government have many, many friends and many, many involvements, but, of course, also many, many enemies, also internal enemies. And and the Jack
0: Ruby thing is, you know, I mean, that's okay. So you've got your one suspect who should be heavily guarded and Jack Ruby, which is totally his real name, (laughs) is able to just (laughs) casually walk up and shoot the guy it was it was a different country
1: <laughs> yeah it was a different time
0: it was texas you just
1: yeah you're just packing heat anywhere you go Yeah, it's right. totally fine just yeah. a
0: typical chicago boy down in dallas you know right. and it, you know it's worth talking about it it and the moon landing are the two the two uh perennial you know they they they're kind of the classic conspiracy theories are they not and really kind of related i mean kennedy's related to the to the space race and everything right but, but this one is, you know, people talk about how it destroyed the soul of a nation. Well, though the soul of the nation was already becoming very sick at this point. That's the
1: yeah. That's that's our case for go go look at a at a pulp cover of almost any kind. Yep.
0: Yeah, and and so, you know, this uh, this happened, and it is it is of course significant, but it really is a good test case for where America is at the time and where America goes. America's response to uh, the official reports, um, America's lingering uh, questions about oh yeah um, about the assassination, America. You know the this like we want the unredacted stuff and yeah. But that's going to be the, the case ca- for RFK's assassin as well. There's going to be it's a lot of and yeah. Martin Luther King's, uh, which I think is a, a much more interesting saga that doesn't get talked about near as much.
1: Yeah, and and we will get there because I think that it one thing that defines that's going to define the sixties and in which the assassination of John F. Kennedy is a kind of fountainhead is that the public is going to become accustomed to both public violence of all kinds, including this very personal kind, but it will also become accustomed to not accepting what it is told about that violence. And the Kennedy is the the presidential Kennedy assassination, not to speak of, of Bobby's assassination, is a very interesting case where in almost no survey since that time of the American public has the official story of a single shooter and Arlen Specter's ballistics, that's the reversing bullet, never has a majority in, 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 a, in practically any survey said, yep, we accept that. Right. So that, that creates a, a dynamic between government media and the public that is significant for the, the trust that is just never going to be there
0: again. Absolutely. Well, that is going to do it for this episode. You'll have to come back to, you know, to talk about um, DMT and the beat generation <laughs> you know, we're probably going to have to wait till the next episode for that. Adam, any yeah. any parting words? I think that as they
1: as the listeners go into the '60s, one thing to look into would be all the different parties involved, because that's something we're going to be picking up. Talking about Vietnam, talking about Ken Kesey, talking about Martin Luther King Jr. is that they need to look up how many different interested parties are involved, because at this point, American history is becoming absurdly complex. Because of the different groups involved, foreign and domestic. And that's no less true for the Kennedy assassination than anywhere else, but it's very true there. So maybe as a test case, the listener can say, okay, who is Jack Ruby? Where did he come from? Mm -hmm. Where is the elder Bush on the day of the assassination? Who does he work for at the time? Right. Because what we're going to get as a kind of media explanation standard thing is here is the one person or one party or one group responsible for this and in an america that is globally connected and in which certainly after 1965 the globe is going to come to us that's never really a satisfactory explanation yeah absolutely
0: well this has been a brief history of power i'm colonel grills here with dr Kuntz. you know where to find this discernment boldness and compassion christian virtues sorely needed today The Biblical Worldview Conference
1: Chicago can help Christians and families for such a time as this. Ryan Wolfmiller, John Bombaro, and others will address gender-solid parenting, wokeism in schools, transgender pronouns, and confessing and sharing Christ in a woke culture. All this Saturday, November 4th. Go to worldviewchicago.org to find out more.